Ireland. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, hello, welcome to the Grand. We have I'm Catherine O'Keefe, and today, tonight, we have with us Marin O'Dwyer, who is a PhD candidate and lecturer in UCD, um, and she specialises in European economic governance and feminist theory. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and we also have with us Moira Murphy, who is a communist, commu <laughs> communist, uh, communist, wow, <laughs> that's some slip. Moira Murphy, who's a community activist and a trade union organiser. Today we're going to be talking about 2015, uh, a roundup. Hero of the year, guys, oh, who's okay. your hero? <laughs> <of the year? laughs> um, hero of the year, well, for me, I think, you know, it goes back to what the most significant uh, development of the year has been and in my opinion that's still the water charges movement even though that began the year before um so from from that movement i have to say um working on the ground you know in the communities and that there's just an amazing amount of people who've come through um really inspirational people ordinary people you know not these mad lefties that you're used to seeing and um they've really just come up because they want to stand with their community and and support people and help them and doing what they feel is right so from that whole movement i have to say like there's a huge amount of amazing people but i think for me one of the individuals who really stands out is um a chap called damien o'neill who's now going to be running in the elections actually in dublin bay north as a community candidate and um he's just he's been so inspirational you know helping everyone blocking water meters running around Dublin giving people a hand just such a genuine person such a warm person um able to diffuse kind of tense situations on the ground you know just a real amazing genuine inspirational person who's only doing it because he believes in it and I just think that caliber of person hasn't come through any movement or any any political thing that's happened my whole lifetime really I mean again I'm biased because I'm there and I'm witnessing it but He's a hero for me. That's, that's a very good hero. <laughs> um, I think mine would probably be Tara Flynn. Because um, even though other people had spoken out about their abortions before, I feel like just someone of just her, so people, people have so much regard for her. Um, and when she told her story, it seemed like it really kicked off another wave of a lot of other people coming forward, which I think really is the quickest and most effective way of changing people's minds. And not even changing minds, but just removing the stigma from women who might be in that position. Um, and I think that was very brave of her to do and then to have to put up with all the stick she gets on social media for it and everything. Um, so she's probably my hero of the year. Um, I suppose like this week, uh, yeah, this week we've been seeing like a lot of like the exile project and stuff, um, which I think that like, I suppose over the past few over the past year, we there's there more and more you see in kind of international media Ireland appearing, um, and I think that it was kind of nice as well to see this, like you know even in the Telegraph and the Guardian just about like Irish women's voices coming forward about being, um, yeah, um, okay, who is your villain of the year? Um. Michael Noonan, I think, because he's the scariest type of villain. Because he doesn't seem like a villain, you know. It's all very subtle, um, like a true villain. Yeah, it's like that. You know, at the very end, it'll turn out it was him all along. Um, you know, he was the one actually pulling all the strings, and um, and I just think the way he continues to lie outright and still be regarded as this kind of financial sage when he promises that deals have been struck in Europe and just waits for people to forget about it 
and doesn't get called on it, like the, that the debt was getting reduced and all this kind of stuff that he comes home celebrating, you know, we got this deal knowing that no one's going to follow up on it because the next big thing will have happened um, and the next big crisis or scandal will have happened. And he's done that so many times now and he's really kind of shaped a narrative around kind of Fine Gael as these mm. sensible economic masters that just, I don't believe it, I don't buy it and I think it's really dangerous to start putting our faith in people who are just kind of messers. So he's my villain. Sounds like all of Fine Gael, but yeah. good choice. <laughs> Personalising it. <laughs> you have to. <laughs> um, yeah, I was, was going to say, because um, I, I'm not very good at thinking long-term, and for me, long-term is even one year. This is a challenge. So, you know, I was going to say David Norris because of what David Norris came out with saying this week, but I'm not going to do that because, obviously, you know, in on balance, he's not the worst, um, despite how absolutely disgusting the comments uh, he made were. Um, but, you know, I'm probably just going to say Bono. Fuck it. I mean... <laughs> Bono. Bono, is the, Bono is, you know, every year. Every year he's the villain, so, you know, leave it at that. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. I don't even have to justify to, myself. Speaking to the heart of Ireland. <laughs> well, you know, it was funny. I I, um, I did a poster series for um, the Right to Change Register to Vote Week, and, you know, I was trying to brainstorm what idea we could go with, and I saw, you know... Um, well, uh, we'll make all the political leaders and everyone as little ducks, you know, flying around, flying away from Ireland. And the whole idea was don't be a sitting duck, register to vote. Um, you know, so I thought, OK, well, who would represent Ireland now and all the corruption and all the horribleness? Obviously, you know, and Kenny and Joan Burton and Dennis O'Brien, the usual. But then I thought, you know, I just have to. I just have to throw in Bono. I have to. A little duck with a leather jacket and, you know, flying <laughs> the sunglasses. away. Sunglasses. Yeah, the sunglasses. It had a little pox logo written on it if anyone wanted to know. Yeah, I just have to do that. We're not allowed to make fun of his sunglasses anymore. Uh, all right. <laughs> but, um, medical no, reasons. I sh probably shouldn't pick him. It's not year specific. He's been at that for years. But, you know, it just, it does represent everything that's horrible about Ireland. And um, just, you know, the corruption, but also the, the hypocrisy of everything that's going on. It symbolises the hypocrisy of our time, actually, you know, the, the sympathy we have for Paris and then how you know we don't give a shit about Syria and all this stuff he really crystallizes a lot of that for me as well but the fact that he's Irish of course makes it worse so yeah he's always my villain every day I think it's funny because I think David Norris is my my villain just because he like he, he spoke so purely to my teenage heart and I just feel like he's just slowly been, been betraying me personally for years now <laughs> but doesn't um, he live on a street with an off license I mean come on yeah it's yeah it's um it's a good off license um, as well, well. <laughs> have some respect it's probably too ashamed to go there that's why um, I don't know we're obviously not drinking enough sherry or something um, I don't really um, okay so what's your highlight of the year definitely the marriage equality referendum here here that's kind of an easy one like it's the obvious yeah. but it's true I mean it was such a big thing it's just unbelievable to see something so good and positive happening mm. um like I just remember, like, I, I was such a bad person. Like, I kept being telling my all my gay friends, you know, this is so hard for me. I keep crying. I'm so emotional. Like, <laughs> why must I suffer so? Um, but it really was amazing. And even, you know, kind of, I went back home the week, a few weeks before and kind of called into my neighbours and stuff. I was just, like, sounding them out. And just the, the attitude of everyone was just so positive. I was kept being surprised by it and on the doors and everything. Um, so not just even the vote, but just the whole chat around it was so nice and I thought it would be much worse actually were you out campaigning um a bit I did I think 
three nights in one day on the doors. Not as much as I wanted to do, mm. but yeah, I would have regretted it if it didn't pass, but it did, so it's okay. <laughs> Here we have, yes, 62.1% and no, 37.9%. And Roscommon, which is the home of my ancestors, <laughs> and South Leitrim voted no. Um, they, yeah, there was a lot of like laughing at Roscommon kind of stuff going on at the time, which I actually thought, you know, it's not really on because, you know, all the people who work so hard in, in that area is actually try and get the vote through and the fact that you know so many people from there don't live there anymore you know the whole you know whole thing I thought it was unfortunate that they kind of singled it out in that kind of negative way it's a bit like um if you watch that RTE investigates you know that program that was on there with uh, all the corrupt councillors mm. you know from all wherever they were from culture land as Dublin people like to think but just the way people were sort of laughing at them being so corrupt and so useless and all you know but you know at the same time they're the only people who are trying to bring any form of investment into a really deprived area you know you can understand the conflict there as well like you know that we're so easy to laugh at really essentially really deprived but it's also like the reason that corruption is there is because of corruption in Dublin Precisely. that starves these areas yeah. like yeah, exactly. it's just less there's less of a dance move to go with that kind of corruption exactly. you can't make a gif out of it <laughs> well, well good point <laughs> but yeah no I mean I, I probably wouldn't honestly like I wouldn't have said the, the yes thing for me I wasn't really centrally involved in it um even obviously I did like whatever I could to to help at the time but um you know I, I have to say I was really heartened to see um some of the stuff that came out around you know the, the voter turnout and, and the high um yes count in working class areas and you know even even in the country kind of just dispelling this myth around you know all these backward you know mm. culture people and all this crap you know when the stats actually come out it's beautiful, actually. It's funny. It, it, again, the mirror from that is, is the water stuff where, you know, the government's constantly telling us it's all over, it's all over. And then we look at the non-payment figures, they're so big. Or like the turnout and, and the mm -hmm. yes side and the working class areas are so big. It just It's an interesting year for statistics proving the truth is actually completely at odds with what the, the mainstream media is trying to paint so often, actually. Um, which brings me nicely onto what I think, uh, for me, maybe was... I don't really have one specific event that was a highlight, Um probably more like two different things actually but um i do think i still think the water thing for me was the most important thing of, of 2015 um definitely the fact that a campaign like that has been able to sustain itself um but i can't i can't picture one particular event there's been a lot of very inspirational kind of small community meetings the types of meetings that have just never happened for decades of ever you know and, and certainly in my generation um just you know again like ordinary people talking about really important stuff about the future privatization of water you know just the most fundamental stuff and having this political critique having this awareness of the fact that we need to actually block meters because that will stop the metering program that'll stop the privatization at source you know just this kind of common sense awareness of how to actually save the country in a real tangible way so again it wasn't like a bunch of lefties in a room debating in an academic sense it was real people talking about the future of their own lives their own ability to have control over their own water it was just so beautiful and you know we would never have had that kind of stuff before there was one march that was actually organized completely by communities um dublin says no in particular and um the turnout rate was so high you know it was huge it was the kind of the thing where they took over the city they marched
especially the two sides of the Liffey, which has been a feature now of a lot of the water protests. And you kind of wave to one side and the other side waves mm -hmm. back. I just think that that's never happened before in protest. I thought it was just such a beautiful moment. You know, the Conley Station and Houston Station, yeah. they meet up on the Liffey. You know, just that moment of waving to the other side of the country, essentially, you know, who came out. It was beautiful. So I say for me, that's probably... It's interesting as well that even though there's that local basis, there's also this wonderful international kind of appreciation. Mm. You know, like there was the Detroit Water Brigade, oh. there's the Greek flags of the protest. So it's not insular, even though it is so grounded in communities. And I think that's really fascinating that it's not kind of in any way selfish. Like it's about trying to make a better country in the interest of making a better world. I think that's really interesting and Absolutely. nice to see. I think that's true. I think water in particular, because it's such a fundamentally universal thing in the, on the one hand. So you have, you know, I mean, interest from international groups that have been campaigning on water rights. I mean, you know, going from Bolivia then to Detroit, mm -hmm. which is an interesting example. Obviously, Irish people culturally might have a stronger connection with somewhere in the US. So that was great. But what also was so inspirational was the likes of the, um, it was a newly formed Greek Solidarity Committee and this year as well, anticipating what was going on in Greece, trying to build a connection in Ireland in some way. Because it's fair to say that culturally we don't really have a strong link with Greece necessarily, in my opinion, maybe not compared to the UK, definitely not, or, or even other countries in Europe, maybe. But um, being able to essentially invite speakers like Syriza, mem members of Syriza, activists involved. There was a one woman who came over who was actually involved in a similar, you know, anti-water privatization campaign in, um, I can't remember where it was. It wasn't in Athens, uh, Thessaloniki or wherever it was, this, the second biggest um, city. And um, she actually came over. But what was so beautiful again was that we were in a position where we didn't have to bring her over to Buzzwells or wherever the hell mm -hmm. and the usual faces show up. It was actually to a community out in Donamead, I think. And um, for them to just meet with community, it was amazing. So from that, then, of course, the, the communities decided to fundraise for their own legal defense fund. And how would they fundraise to sell those Greek flags that yeah. you see on all the marches? So it was just this beautiful, really organic kind of connection of the international struggle, of the European struggle and the completely local struggle. Um, you know, completely born out of necessity and, and just so real for everyone involved and, and really being on the same wavelength in terms of how politics developed. You know, the people coming over from Syriza would have said that the social movements, you know, remain independent of the party and they inform the party and they have to have this sort of specific relationship with the party. And um, I think, you know, people took a lot out of that because we could see the kind of something similar happening here, you know, which is great. Um, I guess, like, with, just in terms of, like... <sighs> organizing and kind of international aspect um the internet seems to be a very you know the the internet guys that that exists and it's obviously a very powerful tool <laughs> so how do you think it's being harnessed for like for for water for i suppose repeal the eighth for for the you know for the, the political movements that are happening um well, just at a very basic level it's opening up information um like stuff like us knowing about what dennis o'brien is up to um, like there's a reason, you know, so many lorries are getting so much extra money out of them. It's because information moves so quickly, like if it's on a USB stick or a Dropbox, which is the most recent thing. Um, so even before you get to kind of creating collective communities or, or movements, just the idea of this information getting out, I think, is a huge thing. Um, and we can kind of forget it because, you know, we, you, if you want to know something, you Google it. Um, how new that actually is, you can actually access that kind of information. Um, and you can also spot where the information isn't available. Like you can spot where things aren't up for FOI and you're like, oh, why is that? You know, 
it's not that you just can't access it, it's that it's being blocked from you. So I'd say that would be kind of a very fundamental thing that's probably changed. Mm. I find it very hard, actually. I grapple with this question every day, funnily enough. But, you know, because on the one hand, one extreme is to say, OK, we turn on our Facebook feeds every day and, oh, there's a, you know, there's a dead Palestinian baby, you know, its brains are hanging out of its face or whatever the hell. And obviously, you know, it's a shock and, and there's a whole debate around being desensitised to it. That's one debate. But then the other is, well, at least we're getting the information. We're never going to get the truth otherwise. But either way, what does it actually do in terms of us being able to change anything on that level? And, it, no, again, I agree. I mean, being aware of Dennis O'Brien, being aware of all that, it, unfortunately, it doesn't necessarily translate into organising. So, again, obviously, the usual danger with social media is that, you know, it leads to a, a hyper-awareness, but, uh, you know, ne does not necessarily itself translate into a facility to organise. That's fine. But then, of course, you know, when most of these movements we're talking about, then the flip side is they are used to organise Palestinian solidarity demos or they're used to do any anything organizing around any of the political issues so it is an incredibly useful organizing tool I mean I have to say again you know one of the most effective and really incredible things it was used for this year was um on the water meter blockades because what you'd have is you'd have a local community waking up at five o'clock all huddling around somewhere you know if it's an estate it'd be one place if it's like where i was it was outside a pub um you have to turn on your little facebook automatic messenger thing first of all straight away there's a spotter going out driving around looking for the vans you know they're um so you have to start getting all your positions in place but we all used that facebook instant messenger to communicate with each other when we're blocking strategic, you know, areas. So as a, like almost like a military tool, it was used like in that way, which I thought was fascinating. And there wasn't really any other tool as effective as doing it that way. And then you'd have your, you know, your closed page where you organize your events and all that stuff. And again, that that's the same as the, the choice stuff or the, the yes stuff. It's all the same on that level, you know, just organizing the regular meetings every week or whatever it is. So it has all those functions in the private, Facebook groups and that so it is I mean definitely it's an incredible effective organising tool but I think again the most important reason why it is an effective organising tool is because absolutely everybody is on it mm. and they can be tagged when they need a notification and, you know there's a few different key reasons why Facebook rather than anything else is so important but one is definitely that um, the general population are on it to begin with you know and then through that you can pull in different kinds of formations through whatever activity that you have on a geographical basis on an issue basis it is it is fascinating it's it's essential really for organizing i think that's like occurred to me more and more over actually it's funny tinder hasn't made it particularly mm -hmm. apparent to me but like i suppose it's like your your feed is very catered to you so as soon as you start getting like when i started getting into kind of like leftist politics and a kind of in a local level my feed became filled with it but then i go into tinder and like i have no shared interests with all of these men I'm like why, why don't people. any of you like solidarity times like <laughs> why don't like it's like i like a lot of pages um uh and i suppose like i don't know if this is tenuous but tying it into also like the idea of referendums as like drawing things down yes or no um do you think that Irish, so like you're either for or you're against, which can, there is, I know there is a feature in in Village Magazine a few months back where they were talking about the divisiveness of, of referendum, uh, referenda. Um, I suppose like in terms of like community building, solidarity building, do you think that, how on board is everyone? Like, because I know Vincent Bryan was doing, he was traveling around the country doing his people's protests, which I thought were great. And they're like, just remind me of like the Cahiers from like the French Revolution. And it's great mm -hmm. that everyone's kind of getting to stand up and uh, and have a say. But ha ha like, 
I don't know, like, how, where, how does it go forward? Like, are, are, does it become an echo chamber? Like, that's being said so much and, like, talking about, like, uh, like you know, different political movements. But is it, are we in an echo chamber or are we breaking free, as Ariana Grande would say? <laughs> no, um, we're not, because, again, as I said, it really depends on how all that, um, all the technology is utilised. If you're... If you're organising on a geographical basis, again, going back to the, the water thing, but, uh, you know, that could work in the constituency thing. If it's an electoral thing, it could have worked. I'm sure it did work for the yes thing the same way. Um, if you're organising on a geographical basis, all you have to do is make sure that you're friends with all your neighbours on Facebook and then you add them to a group. So that's expanding, you know, on a geographical basis and organising. So that's not an echo chamber. That's expanding and then consolidating your politics through the action, the collective action that you're doing, which is organised via Facebook. And then, of course, it does lend itself to being an echo chamber, but that just depends on what you're actually doing. You know, it has nothing to do with the actual technology itself. The technology, you could say it facilitates an echo chamber because the way that you can like pages and then that stuff comes up in your feed, but that all depends on how eclectic your taste is, you know? So I wouldn't, I wouldn't yeah. look at it that way. I think as well, like, there's not necessarily anything wrong with an echo chamber, especially if you're aware that it, it's not representative and you're not kind of sitting back and be like, well, at the next election, everything's going to be just fine. Um, but, like, I think for a lot of people, um, kind of, the internet is very useful for when you first kind of start to be radicalised a little bit. So, like, with feminism, it's very often when you first realise you've been discriminated against because of your gender and you're like that was because of my gender and then you realize other people have had a similar experience um and I know kind of for like growing up for me I didn't get that until I went to college and met people but I know now uh, there's all different kind of Facebook groups and like Twitter hashtags I always sound like such an old person when I say things like Twitter hashtags but so I think that kind of idea of that what other hashtags are there <laughs> hashtag hashtag um so I think that kind of idea of connecting into the echo chamber even can be quite useful for people to realize that their experience isn't that you know individual or isolated um and well, that's really useful an echo chamber or a community yeah. do you know what i mean like isn't it kind of the same thing in some ways i mean you know that community of feminists yeah if you want to call it that surely they're an echo chamber they're all saying the same thing feminism's great blah blah, blah you know no but i mean i mean no echo chamber is saying the same thing either the point of an echo chamber is that um it you know it's it's in a specific field of interest or you know it's only focused on one kind of perspective on something you know broadly speaking unless i got the definition of echo chamber wrong where you're just saying the same thing over and over again but I don't think that's what it means either when you're talking about a Facebook feed. <laughs> but I think actually that's an interesting point because, um, I mean, I'm very conflicted, I have to say. Um, and again, the f feminism that I came through was also from human beings in real life in a college mm. situation. So, um, And it seems to be very much confined to that, to be honest, if you're going to be critical, you know, either confined to third level or confined to the Internet, which in fact is interchangeable a lot of the time when we're thinking about social movements and people being engaged politically in that, actually, to be honest, in my opinion anyway. Um, but, you know, there is there's always this strange contradiction between the world of feminism on the internet, which has its own life, you know, <laughs> outside of the real world, which is great because a lot of stuff happens online that doesn't happen. Like that, you know, the hashtag oh, there, I sound like an old person <laughs> tweeting at uh, Enda Kenny about your periods and all that kind of stuff. There's no real life equivalent of an event like that unless you've got a load of women 
requesting an audience with the Taoiseach and just shouting at him. You know, but there's no, there's no equivalent to that kind of activity in real life. Anyway, there never would be. So it does create all these fascinating possibilities to intervene in the in the political discourse in a really amazing way. But then at the same time, um, you know, it does it can it can potentially isolate um people as well. I mean, I I do worry sometimes when you hear some some women, you know, feminists who start talking about Tumblr as if it's real life, and you do have to sometimes just make a distinction, like okay, well. You know, all that stuff that's going on there, it doesn't translate into Ireland right now. Like, you know, you walk down the street and like people aren't all, you know, women aren't all aware of all that stuff. Um, so there really are challenges there where it can become very um, isolating as well, I think. And especially when you have that whole discourse of the safe spaces and, and all that stuff, it can often really facilitate isolation without realizing it, um, which is dangerous, you know. So again, it's, it's like everything with the internet. It, it can have that negative thing. But with feminism in particular, it is developing very much in my opinion its own language you know and its own concepts which is really important and it's always done that throughout history but because it's sort of on the internet so much more now rather than based on sort of local community groups and and, and you know and in, in especially outside of urban areas um yeah i think there's a danger i mean there's a question as well of course going back the bigger feminist question is like how much of a feminist revolution did ireland ever have you know, if you compare it to the States where they had, you know, all those meetings of groups of women in their houses and, and you know, in, in the suburbs and all that stuff. Um, did that ever happen to the same extent here? And then, you know, how much can, can the internet actually try and help build a more grassroots real movement of women trying to identify with all these issues? You know, and I, I genuinely, and I'm very conflicted with it, not just in 2015, but for the last two years that um, I don't know how far along we are with that. The, the thing that really gives me hope, of course, is the, um, the abortion issue, because that's the real unifying thing mm. that I can see for women. But I don't know. Yeah, like I think the, the question of kind of there is a bit of a backlash at the moment. Um, and like, I think it's kind of maybe the the bad side of the, the internationalist coin is that, you know, kind of a lot of stories from America come almost like Chinese whispers through the internet of like what people are demanding. And they're very often not even close to what the demands actually were. Um, and then this gets understood as, you know, what feminists are asking for, or what LGBT groups are asking for. So I think that is something to be considered mm. in, when thinking about the internet. Um, you know, like I think there was a recent thing where they did an actual evaluation of all the demands in different campuses in the US and they were entirely reasonable. They were not, you know, not these horrific like Atlantic pieces that are like students are taking over and they don't want anyone to talk to them and they want only soft carpeting. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think that there, that it, there is a danger of that. Um, and I know what you mean about the language around, around feminism. Yeah. Um, you see it especially when it comes to intersectionality because that's something that challenges people um, and puts them on the defensive you know when you first realize you're like oh oh I thought I was oh oh I, I'm also the bad guy oh no you know um I mean you don't even know the, the the jargon and you're kind of being challenged in these words you don't even understand that can be quite problematic um, and difficult for people to deal with so there, there needs to be a way to kind of keep bringing people in while still developing a different way of thinking about the world and finding that balance mm. is really important okay um New parties, guys. So many. So many new parties. Oh, this is yeah, like bingo. Um, <laughs> Renew, was that this year? Renew? No. Yeah. Is that we're talking about those kind of parties? Renew, yeah. Social Democrats, Independent Alliance. We're, I'm sorry, but AAPPB is terrible naming and I want them to rebrand. <laughs> PBP. 
people. Yeah, I can't even say. I can't say that it. That wasn't this year, though. They've been around. But I suppose mm. we're like I'm talking about like electro electoral movements. So yeah, we've been looking. with these acronyms, is it? <laughs> it just, it's not catchy. Like renewal. Like God well, bless them. It's catchy. It's a very interesting thing. You know what? Two groups, political groups, decided to form a merger, which is something the left has been incapable of doing. Obviously, is actually Direct Democracy Ireland and the National Citizens Movement. Interesting enough. I think that was only this week, you know. So, I mean, there's an example of people coming together who recognise themselves to have common interests and actually work towards some form of merger. So, I don't know, I, I thought that was interesting, actually, um, that they did that. They wouldn't be necessarily left, but sort of, you know, God, what do you even call it? I, I don't know. <laughs> On a weird spectrum of anti-kind of establishment politics, but not uh, developed in a very kind of strict ideological framework but more just like anti anti-establishment and um pro-sovereignty you know but interesting interesting that that merger happened what other um there was yeah renew of course was that this year as well and identity ireland you know that weird racist group i don't know if they're a political party so much just a club i assume they'll probably they, ha you know, they haven't registered yet i think no. they're, they're waiting to get numbers I assume. Might be waiting a while. Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. But again, you know, it's something to put on yeah. the radar. Yeah. Anyways, definitely. Yeah. No, there has been a lot. And it's interesting because um, I suppose you see the, you know, likely disintegration to some extent of the Labour Party, um, just in terms of votes. I mean, also, I think maybe people moving from the Labour Party to the likes of Fine Gael, which I think, you know, says a lot about the class interest there in terms of some people who were in that party. But um, again, I suppose it's in a time we're in a very kind of uncertain time. And I think people are all trying to scramble to position themselves in the most, you know, useful way, whatever that might be. People are dropping out of parties and forming new ones and all. I suppose it's just the time that's in it really mm -hmm. this year or the last few years where when the establishment is questioned, you know, their their popularity is questioned in a way that's never happened since the history of our state. Um, you know, it's inevitable that you're going to get a scramble for some kind of power there in, in a political mm. formation. And, you know, everybody's open to new ideas now. So they're trying to capitalize on that, I guess. I think it's important to view it in an, like an international comparative context, though. It's not just in Ireland that we're seeing this fragmentation of the political spectrum. Um, and for years now, there's been talk about this idea of the hollowing out of the state and the idea that political parties aren't serving their purpose of connecting people to the actual state because they're more interested in serving the state rather than bringing up ideas or interests. Um, and like that's kind of what you're seeing across Europe, um, both in terms of the fracturing of parties or in the creation of these big alliances, like in Germany, these massive centre-left, centre-right alliances. Um, and it's a real question about how politics can continue to work when this mechanism that we used to use to translate political mm -hmm. will into governing is kind of, it just isn't working anymore. Um, and that's partly to do with kind of parties becoming entrenched, but it's also to do with being in a globalised world where the, the options you have as a government are so limited, um, which means that you're inevitably going to break promises and overpromise, and then blame Europe or blame the markets. Um, and that's a really big problem that I don't think any of even the new parties are are being honest about is kind of the, the, the new limitations of politics, especially for Ireland in its position within the European Union and the euro and stuff like that. They can't be. How could they be? If anyone advocates staying within the EU, now whatever your position is on that tactically, but 
I mean, you you know, we're going to be constrained and there's all sorts of ways that we're going to be constrained where, where our own population won't have any influence. And that's such a fundamental, like, giant EU elephant in the room, really. I mean, mm. that's that's where it is. I mean, that's why I think um, this idea of, of the old way of doing politics is really gone because, um, you know, you could see it in Spain and Greece. I mean, obviously, things have sort of not gone the way we the left would have hoped but um this idea um of the political consensus is gone and i think people are really wanting this new way of doing politics i have to say i mean most people i talk to and again most people i talk to is never a good gauge of anything of course <laughs> but um there's an overwhelming consensus in ireland of people that did vote or people who've never voted that they would prefer to vote independent not left not right they don't have a very strong political ideology, left or right, but they want independence because they would view anyone who's in a suit, who's looking for power in the government as corrupt. And of course, there's absolutely completely understandable reasons for that if you look at all of history of, of the Irish state. Um, so that that space now is opening up. And I think, you know, there is some movements in other countries, but really I think Latin America is the most interesting mm. historically for, for looking at comparable examples of, you know, people who are viewed as ordinary or of the people rather than you know these kind of career politicians like Chavez like Morales those kind of figures mm. moving up and becoming you know leaders of their own nations and also coming out of the structures of an externally imposed neoliberal economic model um, exactly but I think coming back actually to identity Ireland if you look across Europe that space of the people who are voting independent Ireland has been captured by the far right in a, a lot of countries this idea of like rejecting um, and the people who step into that tend quite often to be people like Le Pen. Um, and there's a real danger. It hasn't happened in Ireland, but I think there's a real danger that it could. Um, and I don't really know how we can stop it other than kind of being wary of it. Well, I think it's funny. I mean, I've come across that point a few times, you know, like, I don't know how we can stop it. And uh, the kind of the socialist or the Marxist to me would say, well, that's very obvious. I mean, we need to build the left. You know, yeah. but but in reality, it's not that easy because I mean, what have we got? We've got a load of left parties over there. I mean, who've completely failed, really, in 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 real ways to capitalize, which is a horrible word to say, but <laughs> essentially to capitalize over the fact that we've had the biggest crisis in the capitalist system in our lifetimes. They haven't, you know, built any form of um, left hegemony in 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 the popular kind of imagination. They haven't been able to communicate their ideas very successfully. They haven't been able to grow in, in membership numbers in, in a substantial way like you think they might if they had actually employed the correct tactics or, or the you know, whatever it is. I mean, they just, it didn't work. You know, I mean, you can always blame objective factors, but I would say that compared to other countries who might, may have had a relatively free pitch because, I mean, we don't have the levels of state repression you look at those water charges marches what the hell happened there i mean we weren't kettled we weren't tear gassed do you know what i mean we have a, a much more of a free run than other countries too i have to say that um so you know you would question well what the hell is the left doing with itself so um but for me i mean that is ultimately the only answer is the left there's no such thing as an anti you, you can't simply be anti-fascist it's not it voting against it's something to vote for precisely yeah. it has to be having not just vote but yeah well like for, have, yeah. A, have a vision for what you want ireland to be and it has to be positive it has to be based on very real tangible policies but it also has to have a social vision an economic vision a, a vision of freedom and solidarity and all these beautiful and wonderful things that is the tradition of the left it doesn't come from anywhere else in my opinion the only problem in ireland is that we haven't succeeded in achieving it we haven't succeeded in giving anyone the vision we haven't succeeded in in doing any of the real organizing and building of power or institutions i mean our you know again our left-wing media doesn't exist 
you know, in any real way, um, you know, which creates all those problems in another country. Precisely. (laughs) (laughs) You were saying about building the left is the response against, I suppose, uh, a a growth of the far right. Um, And I think that I've kind of been considering recently, I suppose, is like if you're looking at, you know, Bernie Sanders um, and how he's been kind of tackling things on the kind of policy level. So the idea of like converting people to your to your cause in a way is kind of more practically done on a policy. It's easier to change someone's minds in terms of policy in a very immediate way than it is to kind of, you know, their deep, deep down felt beliefs about how the world should run. So is expanding the left necessarily the answer or like do you think that maybe kind of I don't know. Um, this is such a leading question because what I think is <laughs> is that like uh, I think that there maybe that dialogue needs to be established more, more, a more healthy dialogue between the the left and the right or between between people because I've, I've I suppose it's like a thing that I suppose just in terms of like the marriage referendum again in terms of like repeal the ace. It, it, like I, I just find it really healthy to be like to to, to be othering people because I find like that's just a continuation of like kind of the process of othering. Like it, it's just it, it, you're you're creating new others, but they are still an other. And I'm very much a big believer in like the master's tools uh, well, being unhelpful. I think that's really interesting. Actually, um, mentioning both Bernie Sanders and the likes of the S campaign because. Um, you know, Bernie Sanders, there's a lot of internet clips going around about Hillary's um, political career and her history on her positions on different issues and Bernie Sanders. And what you see, um, one of the best ones is how much um, Bernie has been consistently on the, the right side of history and supporting gay marriage. Whereas, of course, Hillary initially was completely against it and has completely flipped and now supports it. So it's interesting when you look at this dialogue of the right, even in Ireland where you have Fine Gael, all, all the mainstream um, parties completely supported the Yes campaign. Also you have huge billionaires or millionaires or whatever giving loads of money to the, the, the cause. And then on the Pride March there we had, um, you, you know, you have your Airbnbs, you have your Facebook, your mm. Google on, on the march. Um, you know, all completely, you know, horrific capitalist institutions that don't pay tax and right-wing politicians that have destroyed people's lives, etc, etc. Um, and you know, you really you do have to ask yourself this question of how did the right, how did the capitalists shift their position, which consistently historically has been held by the left? How did that happen? And why did that happen? Well, I don't think in Ireland it was because of the strength of the left. I think what's interesting about kind of marriage equality in particular, um, you know, and people often ask, like, why is this the cause that has done so well, not just in Ireland, but elsewhere? Um, and Kathleen Lynch out in UCD has a very simple answer. She's like, it's free. Um, it doesn't cost any money. Um, and I think that's that's important to remember when we try to extrapolate it to other things. Um, and I think I think the idea of dialogue is really important, especially, I think, getting past, like, if we think about Donald Trump, you know, it's not good enough to just mock him because there are so many people who support him. So, like, what, what do we do there? But I do think there is a problem when you enter a dialogue that you allow the other person who's involved in it to shape the parameters of it. Um, and that's been a real problem is kind of things getting dragged to the right and, you know, so, so that then we all end up here and be like, oh, we're on the fringe. Like, when did that happen? Mm-hmm. Like, when I, you know, I used to be centre-left and then they changed what centre-left was and now I'm not with it anymore. Um, so I think, I do think dialogue is important, but I think we have to be very careful of allowing dialogue and this idea of balance that we're so obsessed with in Ireland to say that it's equal to say that it's okay for a woman to die 
you know, in order to, to keep the Eighth Amendment um, and that that's equivalent to someone telling their story of going to England to exercise bodily autonomy, that those are equal parts of a dialogue. Um, so I don't know how we get past, you know, it being pulled out by the extremes and still have this opportunity to actually discuss things and not just write off like we were talking about earlier this idea of writing off rural Ireland like mm. who said who said that they weren't going to turn out like and, and vote yes you know it was just so I I do think you're right but there is a danger there that we allow kind of the parameters of the debate to shift in a way that we end up then being the sinister fringe or the loony lefties or whatever mm. um just because we've allowed everyone else their chance to speak well there actually um Maureen Enright is very good on this, this idea that um, particularly in relation to repeal the eighth, there's, you know, there's a good way of expressing your mm. political opinion and a bad way, you know, doing the abortion pill bus. Oh, that's so irresponsible and so reckless and so dangerous and having your little, you know, um, you know, Imelda doing their little Throwing performances. Oh, again, it's yeah. oh, it's so horrible. It's just going to alienate ordinary people, you know, to these crazy, irrational women who are expressing their opinion in this very, um, you know, unbecoming kind of way. You know, but that whole discourse is very interesting, um, particularly on the on the on the choice thing. I think it's this year. If we're going back to the twenty fifteen, I think this year in particular as well, it really has exposed itself that there's this idea of a legitimate way of having a protest, and there's an illegitimate way. Actually, again crossing over with the with the water charges you know there's a legitimate way to protest mm. you go on your march you make your point but will you actually interfere with the installation of a water meter no you are going to jail if you do that and that's exactly what happened mm. and you know it's the same with the abortion thing actually so that idea of legitimate and illegitimate protest uh, which is almost always linked to one being effective and one not being effective you can give yeah. it the abortion pill bus well that's incredibly effective for anyone who needs an mm -hmm. abortion right they're going to give them the yeah. pills that can do it but also, so. I think we saw that a lot in the, the Yes campaign. Um, you know, people were told not to be so camp as that, you know, it was really homophobic. Um, there was all this talk about people being snide towards the no side. And that's that's a homophobic slur, this this trope of the, the sneering gay. Um, and, that, you know, that was being trotted out by people on the Yes side, you know, saying, no, you must, exp you know. Um, and I know a lot of my friends found that incredibly frustrating. You know, they're going out on the doors and they're, you know, most of the response is great, but every so often it wouldn't be great. And, you, you know, have to be very nice and respectful. And people were saying horrible things to you. And it's just, this gets back to the idea of referendums, I think, of kind of when you have to go out and ask for your rights, mm. that you then have to kind of tone yourself down um, if that's what you want. But I think that the, the, the Yes Equality campaign show that you actually don't really. Mm. Um, and also, like, I don't think the pro-choice numbers have fallen because of any of speaking of Imelda's actions. You know, it's just it's just this idea that people, there's this mythical Middle Ireland that is just terrified of anything different and they don't seem to exist. There's a housing crisis. <laughs> oh, for God's sake. Come on! <laughs> Uh, there, there is a housing crisis. Uh, so let's see what we have. 20 council houses built nationwide between January and June. Um, we have house prices rising by 7.6% nationally. Rent increases 9% in Dublin and 13.6% in Cork. Um, and then we're having a rent freeze for two years. Crazy of the, the ever-generous Fine Gael. Um, and then... The, the the modular houses, I. Mm. So you can't say prefabs. 
Which are more expensive. Oh, yeah, they're <laughs> 11 grand houses. more. 11 grand more than the actual houses. Oh, what's the company that builds the mechanic? I wonder if someone's involved. Someone's involved with that company, and I can't remember his name. And he seems like a nice guy. He's <laughs> got a nice tan. <laughs> um, God, I just... Are we going to get sued? Yeah, no, it's like... <laughs> Dear Dennis O'Brien. Would not be the first time I've had this worry, so I'm fine with it. <laughs> um, so what do we see happening? Um, deepening of the crisis, more people homeless, disaster, more evictions, um, hopefully more organising, more grassroots mobilisations around that. Um, but not looking good. Yeah, I mean, I think it's... It's really important to try to figure out where it's coming from. And there's a lot lot of different causes. Um, plenty of it is just bad planning. Plenty of it is short-termism. Um, but we saw this week um, the ECB continued to have negative rates. Um, and like I, I study economics, and I still always think I'm wrong because I'm like, no way could it be this mm -hmm. crazy. Um, and that, has, that actually has a huge impact in that there's a lot of money running around and it costs banks money now to keep money in the bank because of these negative interest rates. So what you're seeing in Dublin, same as you're seeing in London, in New York, this buying up of property. Um, and that's why you're seeing kind of redevelopment and people being kicked out and people are perfectly happy to just invest in building these kind of high rise apartment blocks. Um, and that's a, that's a real problem because they're not being built based on demand. They're being built because they're an investment vehicle. Um, and that's a problem with planning and how people are allowed to invest. But that problem's not going away, given that the priorities of our economic policy are about this kind of growth and stability of the, the financial sector and not about other types of growth. Um, so I think it's important to connect in with that. But also, I think there's such an immediacy and a need for immediate action on like people's day-to-day -day lives of finding somewhere to live. Um, so it's important to try to keep all of that in your head together which is not that easy I don't think yeah I have to say I mean there's something horribly mundane about the debate not the not the reality of the fact that people's lives are destroyed because of this and um, that it's going to get worse and that you know like it's absolutely disgusting it's the worst thing I mean you know most of the other political issues if you're putting it against being homeless you know a lot of them don't count I mean you know, of, you look at the marriage referendum you know other big things even abortion or, or water charges they actually pay in comparison in, in um, against a family that doesn't have anywhere to live. You know, I mean, really, well, I mean, that's a horrible thing. It's not about pitting them against each other. But at the same time, there's something very banal about this debate because what we need is so simple and it's just something that the government will not do. Building affordable housing, social housing. Mm. Those are things that need to happen. They need to happen now. They're not happening. I mean, it's simple yeah. as that. There's nothing else to it as far as I'm concerned. So but There's just this idea that housing should be left to the market like and it, it that, that that just makes no sense you know like it's it's so such an essential thing that it just doesn't make any sense that it should be this tradable market commodity because that what we get then is just like people who need it can't access it um and yet the government end up spending so much money um trying to kind of retrofit it with uh modular modular housing is that what mm -hmm. we're calling it okay um and it just like there's a real ideology there and you see it when people like ask Alan Kelly about it and it's like, oh no, supply and demand and you know, we'll create incentives for builders. And it's like, no, just, just build some houses, you know? Mm -hmm. Like it, 
this idea that you can only tinker around the edges of this all-knowing market um, and it's fine if it takes 15 years to work through the, those housing lists because it's not, re you know, it's not real people's lives that are being disrupted. Mm. Yeah, no, it's it's really disgusting, I have to say. Um, in terms of the activism, in terms of what's going to happen, I mean, what we need to do, um, Spain is a bit ahead of this. They have a huge mm. anti-fiction movement and that's where Ada Calau came from, the current uh, mayor of Barcelona. And it's, it's really inspirational, actually, the level of organising that they've done. Um, and that's really where I think, I mean, there is that kind of stuff going on here. There's the Irish Housing Network, which kind of, I think, is very much inspired by that model of doing things. And um, I think actually there was a, kind of a high profile eviction or potential eviction going on in Dolphins Barn over the last few days, which was very interesting um, just to see how the state responds. So there's going to be a lot more of that next year and we're just going to have to, the like the housing movement, which isn't me at all, but you know, that's going to have to really get organised and um, be prepared for what's going to come down the line. But again, you know, it's it's this kind of thing, it's the same with like feminist issues beyond the, the choice even, this idea of protecting um, services that can provide essential um, you know, services for people who are homeless or whatever. It's the same with like the domestic violence um, services. All these kind of essential things that keep people from not completely falling apart or dying or whatever. But there's a, trying to maintain that is one task, but then also trying to fight back against it and be proactive and building alternatives is another challenge. And that's going to be a huge one. I, I just don't know where this the housing movement is placed to do that, deliver on all that stuff next year. Um, one would hope again, you know, this is a debate that's always going Going on in the likes of the water charges movement which is organic and uh, it's community driven that that could expand and is expanding um into other issues that are to do with austerity so you know you would imagine that if there's sort of pockets of resistance that they'll be mobilized to help communities if there's housing issues just like anything else and that's definitely happening on an organic level but then again it's just to what extent that can become organized and really powerful to resist what's coming down the line because Horrible stuff is coming down the line, that's for sure. And people's lives are going to be destroyed in 2016. And it's disgusting. It's definitely not going to change anytime soon. I think that the really grotesque thing is that you kind of know that um, a lot of the banking repossessions, for some reason, aren't going to happen until after the election. It's almost like the government mm -hmm. has the ability to regulate um, and has some influence with the banks that they put so much money into. Um, but yes, so, you know, like we're seeing like these <laughs> rollovers like of, of these mortgages that are, that are going unpaid um, and that's not going to continue happening. But it, I think it'd be, it would be very shocking if those um, repossessions started happening before the election. And it's it's almost as if the, the government can regulate the market. I, I, I don't know. Is that a bit, have I gone, have I gone too far? Conspiracy theorist. Yeah. Chemtrails? <laughs> no, <laughs> definitely not. That sounds like it makes sense. There's a difference between a conspiracy and a conspiracy theory. <laughs> um, we were talking about the election. I suppose next year. Let's talk about next year, 2016. Um, I think something happened 100 years ago, but I have a feeling they're going to be going on about it a lot. Sometimes I struggle to just identify who I fancy the most <laughs> out, of, out of them all. Is he, does it matter that he's a blue shirt? Does it matter? Um, but, so, okay, so we have... Commemorations are going to be suitably politically loaded. Yeah. Does it matter? Can we expect... Could we expect anything different? Um, like... I think it, it if it if it, I, I think you're right, and I think it will become kind of just a political battle of trying to you know who can who can dress up the most 
um, and who can try to claim ownership over the, this history. Um, and even the way we're seeing it right now, it's very backward looking, which is one way of going about a commemoration um, as opposed to more forward looking. Um, and given everything we've talked about already, like I don't think there could ever have been a better time for a big conversation about who we are as a people. Um, and if it's just going to be about who's grandfather or who was a member of which political party which turned into which political party which then turned back into you know <laughs> if that's how we spend it I think that kind of missed opportunity given everything that's going on is just quite sad yeah definitely and you're right absolutely the timing of it is actually it's kind of beautiful. I mean, let's be honest. We've had the biggest mobilisation since the foundation of our state. And as a backdrop, you know, all this stuff going on, real strong anti-EU sentiment, you know, essentially it's like a new form of anti-imperialism uh, as the old, uh, you know, anti-imperialism of 100 years ago. You know, there's something very beautiful about that, definitely. Will that be captured in the official commemorations? Of course not, of course not. Well, Jesus, Fine Gael wouldn't pick up on that and uh, of course wouldn't want to. But even, even maybe... Sinn Féin or other groups, they might not all pick up on some of the nuances that maybe I would like um, to see kind of drawn out. Um, but then there's the whole question of what is the usefulness of the commemoration. And for me, I'm only interested in that kind of stuff in terms of how it influences the present and revitalizes us and our, our collective memory and our understanding of history. And all, having all that debate is fantastic as long as it's really done in a, in a meaningful way, an engaged way. Um, with the present and understanding where we're going in the future. But, you know, again, the, the, the classic thing to say is how little has changed. And, you know, Connolly in particular, for me, obviously is the most important voice um, of that that era and that struggle. And, um, you know, really it's it's become such a cliche. You know, you see his face everywhere and you see all the quotes. But I just don't think there's anyone who could really sum it up um, any better. I mean, almost, you know, most of the key things that he would have said back then are still relevant. They're relevant in a new light. Um, it is the EU now more than the, the British Empire, but um, there's a lot of potential to draw parallels. Now, the question is, though, the, the real question for me is, who actually cares? Because, like, obviously <laughs> Fine Gael are going to do it and all that crap. But, I mean, like, and then maybe some pe normal people are going to see it in the street and all that kind of stuff. But and there's the whole inevitable kind of ritual of that. And it's just going to happen. We all know that. But then there's also... Um, there's also just ordinary people and the people who, who run all these societies and keep them alive and you know it's beautiful especially when they're connected to communities and they're really involved and keeping history alive on the local level there's a lot of really really beautiful initiatives like that um but then on the other hand you know a lot of it is probably just lost on the vast majority of people who just want to get on with their lives I mean not everybody cares about history and not everybody really wants to get involved in that. and they might already be sick of it already because we're already kind of talking about it a lot and then just get it over with and so I think there's a lot of conflicting ideas around there but um, as long as we can sort of connect that key narrative around what the, the, the fundamentals of the struggle 100 years ago was about you know with what what we're trying to achieve today i mean then i'm happy you know then i think if, if that's the overwhelming thing that comes out that would be great and you know the republican tradition is is very strong and this it's very contradictory of course but there's a lot of really positive amazing stuff that i think needs to be resuscitated from that and hopefully for a new generation that can see it in a new light where it's not just bogged down on this ira stuff and you know all the negative things that people might associate with republicanism but really revitalize the the idea of that movement and that struggle and what it stood for and popularize it for a new generation that would be the dream. I really hope some of that can happen. Is that all? Up the round. <laughs> I don't know. Um, okay, so the election. Predictions. Ooh. Predictions. 
Let's put a bet in. <laughs> uh, people will vote. People will uh, vote. Stuff will happen. Well, enough people <laughs> vote, though. Um, what, how many is enough? Well, again, I mean, what was the percentage turnout rate in Ireland last time? It wasn't great. I can't mm. remember now off the top of my head. Now, again, you know, if you look at the turnout for maybe the, the yes equality, that hopefully um, will actually... Um, translate into more votes this time because new generation the new generation will be registered yeah. to vote and hopefully that'll translate into something like this might not don't yeah. know I mean people might just switch off uh, as regards elections because they feel it's all the same again whereas you know obviously as the anarchists love this idea of the referendum being an exercise in direct democracy mm. so maybe they care more about that and not this we don't know it's hard to know mm. what the turnout but for me the key would be the turnout but then having said that the deadline for registration has already gone so hard to know hard to know yeah. what will happen yeah yeah, like I think turnout is going to be a huge thing, um, especially among kind of, you know, younger people, um, people who generally don't vote um, for whatever reason. Um, but yeah, like I, part of me thinks it's going to be this amazing, like the actual earthquake election will be this time. You know, it wasn't the last time was just a bit of a, a kicking for Fianna Fáil and the actual earthquake might come this time. But I, like we're a couple of months out now and I just I, I don't see the the people to get behind. Um there are individuals, definitely, but even I'm trying to think, you know, in different constituencies in, in my constituency, I, I don't really know who I'm going to vote for. Mm-hmm. Um and I kind of hoped at different points during the last couple of years, I kind of had a feeling oh I, I may have found something to vote for and it always kind of falls falls back again. Um so I, I don't know. I think, you know, we're always looking for kind of quick changes in elections, but I think if we can, if we see kind of maybe the Social Democrats getting a few numbers, seeing kind of some of the independents getting more numbers and maybe enough that it really does become so beneficial to start coming together that we might see something the next election down. I mean, I sound like Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin talking Uh about a two election strategy, Um, but isn't that just bizarre that you have two of the parties not running to be in government? Like, I think that's just crazy. Um, like, what, what what kind of election is that? Like, we're not going to see real competing manifestos of policy ideas from the major parties. We'll see um, contestation from the newer parties. But I think it's going to be a bit crazy to see that this idea that everyone has kind of accepted who's going to be Taoiseach next time out. And it's the rest that's to be figured out. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm a politics nerd. I'd like something more exciting than that. I'd like higher stakes mm-hmm. well I think um, the most important way to look at it is really to understand what's going to be a protest vote and what's going to be a vote for people who believe in politics believe in the parties that are on offer and I think that's the character of, of Irish politics in particular going back to this idea that the independents will be very popular um, you know precisely because they are not members of political mm-hmm. parties precisely because they are not wedded to some what they might view as an ideology or a particular way of, of doing things and uh, I think you're going to see a higher percentage of protest voting um, you know Sinn Féin will do well but again they do appear to have some kind of limits for a number of reasons, so I don't know what's going to happen there. Um, the left and the independents will do well. They'll do better than they ever did before, no doubt about that. But what does that mean? 
where does that leave them? Um, you know, obviously it, there's no coherent left formation that's come out of this. That would be years in the making that hasn't happened. We know that it's always fallen apart um, so far. But again, that's subject to change right now, hopefully. Um, but I think it would be a mistake to put all hopes and dreams in this election um, because... As always, I mean, and we know this from examples, Sarisa being a great one, um, if the social movements aren't strong enough to, um, you know, maintain that pressure, then it's it's not really a whole amount useful anyway. Um, a Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael coalition could actually do wonders to the left, maybe. You never know. You just don't know. Um, so I don't really think it's useful that to speculate too much. But I mean, we know, we'll definitely know that the um, the left and the independents will do well. They'll do better than they did. That's all you can say. Um, last question. What, what, okay, for me, 2015. For me, 2015 was a strange time because it made me very aware that seemingly pretty much everyone in my life is anxious. And then, like, everyone got into mindfulness and et cetera. But, like, for me, 2015 was a time of anxiety and hope and... 2016, I, I just, I'm way too, I need to like kill my romanticism before like New Year's. Maybe that's what my New Year's resolution would be, to kill the inner romantic. But what were your, what were your dominant emotions or like about, what are your feelings about 2015? What are your feelings about 2016? I think 2015 was a year of fear. Um, like fear of economic collapse and Grexit, fear of, um, Fear on my on like for a lot of people, I'd say of a no vote in May, mm. um, and now even more fear of ISIS, um, fear of this other who's like coming here on rickety boats to I don't know, mm. try to live a life, terrifying. Um, but like I think this idea of anxiety, but this idea of fear, um, it's connected to kind of precarious employment and all of this. Um, I would like two thousand and sixteen to be a bit less fearful. Um, even in any one of those aspects I would be happy for like I think it would be great if we could have a politics that wasn't based on fear especially when we're talking about things like I know we didn't really talk about it but like the, the, the refugee um, or the yeah. migrant crisis whichever you want to call it um, but that fear is because people feel so precarious in their own yeah. lives um, and also like people saying that they don't want to go to London or go to shopping centres because of ISIS, that kind of fear. I think it, it shows something deeper is going on, that people are just a bit petrified. Um, and we've seen time and again that that being used to benefit kind of centralisation of power and the taking away of individuals' power. Um, yeah, I think you're right, though. The anxiety thing is definitely a part of it. Anxiety and hope, which is an interesting mix that you mentioned there, but I think is actually true. Um, because again, I think we're moving into more contradictory times. Um, it's becoming more and more inevitable that we're entering into a period in history where um, with increased conflict. Um, you know, we're probably going to have another crisis. Well, we are, I think, in my opinion, we're going to have another crisis, uh, financial crisis. Um, you know, um, people always make comparisons to pre-World War II. There's a lot of truth in that. The growth of the right, the tensions, you know, in Europe, etc., etc. Part of that is true, part of that is not. Um, honestly, I think one, one of the best things, and it's hard, it's a sensitive topic, um, not the best things, but the Syrian refugee crisis did one thing which um, is interesting and hasn't happened before, hasn't happened with the Iraq war, which is that it made very real the, the conflict, the ongoing conflict, the years and years and years long conflict in the Middle East um, because 
they're coming here now. They're coming to Europe. They're invading, inverted commas, Europe, which is a physical proof of the violence that we've put on, oh no, collectively, Europe, we have put on um, these people. What is it, four million? Four million dead Muslims in the last few years? You know, that's a lot of people. It's a lot of death. That's our fault, you know. And um, now we're actually realising that. Now, of course, what actually happens, what manifests is horrible racism, even in Ireland. Good old Ireland, we're still, you know, there's a lot of that going on. Anti-Islam Ireland, you know, all that crack. But, um, and, and amongst normal people as well, you know, there is racism out there and it's horrible. But, um, and of course, there's the, 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 the refugees welcome, all that stuff going on, which is really important. It has to um, become bigger. But the fact that they're here, I think, is a shift. Is a shift in the West. You know, um, something's becoming more real for people. Something's becoming more serious. And I think the weight of that history there in the recent past for a new generation hopefully will provide something to keep them going in the future to fight even more and recognise how powerful um, that that power is in the world and uh, will hopefully wake up a new generation. I think that's just, that's 2015 and the refugee crisis overwhelmingly confronts us with our own behavior you know as a as a well not ireland as a western imperial power but our complicity well for ireland and shannon and that yes but as a west and the fact that we benefited off that as well we all have indirectly and and that's disgusting but it's true and now we're confronted with and you know that is the shit hitting the fan but i think that's the most important thing so there's that anxiety around it but there's a realness there's a waking up as well and i think that is essential if we're going to get anywhere in the future which we probably won't but we have to try (laughs) Um, uh, my final, my final thing I was going to say is like I'm looking forward to like uh, for 1916 is like Ireland like 1916 take two is uh, like a new adulthood or like Ireland re- reaching maturity and taking responsibility for itself rather than just kind of throwing everything onto to colonialism and just being like actually now we're especially think like so much thing like so many things have come to light especially with like the like you know the teen babies which was. I think made very real for a lot of people what had happened and things like that um but i think it's like it's like i think it's like that like move towards responsibility and kind of uh i don't know millennials becoming mature shame and... there's none of them left in the country mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like they're all coming back it's fine yeah. <laughs> thank god for end of honest <laughs> that was his plan all along oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah okay um thanks very much guys thank you